Today's episode features a story about love found and love lost, political intrigue, kidnappings, daring escapes, and love reunited. It's a story worthy of a Hollywood blockbuster. I'm your host, Leah. I'm Phil. And I'm Steve. This is the story of the strangest kidnapping case you've never heard of. Wait, what? If you have an appetite for the strange and bizarre, then pull up a chair and grab a spoon for another intriguing serving of Remnant Stew. Remnant Stew is gluten-free, organic, made from all natural, free-range ingredients and guaranteed to provide the recommended daily serving of curiosity. All right, now before we get into that strange kidnapping case, let's take a look at our calendar. Gosh, we're already in June, summertime, yeah? We do this every time we see the calendar. <laughs> we're already. Wow, we're already here. Time flies. It does fly. Yeah. Anyway, today marks uh, today is June 6th, and it marks the 78th anniversary of the D-Day landings. On this day in 1944, the Allied forces, under the command of General Eisenhower, launched an early morning attack on German positions on the Normandy coast in France. Some 4,000 Allied soldiers died on that day, but more than 100,000 managed to establish a beachhead and began pushing inland before the end of the day. Unfortunately, there are not too many of those folks, those brave folks uh, left around today Mm -hmm. as that generation is passing us, um, passing from us too rapidly. Uh, You know, Leah and uh, Phil, I got to go to France three years ago and stand on the top of the cliffs and just uh, marvel at the, uh, at the at the at the task that they had that day, you can still see the German pillboxes wow. are still there. Yeah, and uh, you can still uh, you can just uh, I don't know. It's a, it's very inspiring to stand there and see them. Think about them coming on that beach and and climbing, scaling up that cliffs uh, cliff while they're being fired on. And I, I think a lot of them didn't even make it to the beach. Yeah, it was just absolutely it was unbelievable. Yeah, Saving Private Ryan is a very realistic yeah. uh, scene uh, about that. Well, now, uh, tomorrow, June the 7th, it's another interesting day. It's National VCR Day. Oh, yeah. nice. I got I to decorate for that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I got to break that box back out. The video cassette recorder, or VCR, is one of the most famous innovations in the history of technology. This is because there was a time, okay, around 1989, when nearly every household in the United States owned a VCR. You might recall the the home video recording battle between the Sony Betamax and the VHS by by the company called JVC. In the end, the VHS came out on top. I think it's because Betamax they wouldn't share their technology. Yeah, they didn't, they wanted to be the only producers, right? And I think yeah. they probably I think they had like a superior product. Oh, yeah. That's what everybody said. They yeah. had an amazing product, I right? Mean, they just did fidelity it. was awesome on it, right? They just wouldn't share. And so by by uh, 1987, JVC had 90% of the $5.25 billion VCR market in the United States. This marvel of technology had several uses, such as playing movies, videos, as well as recording shows and events that were aired on TV. You remember we mentioned on one of our uh, oddities a few shows back about, uh, what was her name, Marion uh, Stoke, Stokes. right? That's yeah. right. Who uh, continuously recorded shows for over 30 years. On every channel. <laughs> on every channel every available. Every station as often as she can. And she's like the only person that's provided a complete record of that whole time. I think it's funny that, that the kids remembered that all they ha- that they would be in the middle of something on a restaurant and they'd have to get up and run home to change out the yeah, tape. switch out the tape. Right? <laughs> so anyway, there was a point in time when uh, before the internet 
Uh, when recording television shows, to later replay them was a joy for many. I remember the first yes. time doing it, I thought, oh, this is so cool. We can record it now and watch and it later. watch it whenever you want it to. <laughs> That's right. So happy VCR day. And remember, be kind, rewind. <laughs> <laughs> now, next Sunday, June 19th. It is a special day for many reasons. First of all, it is Father's Day. That's right. Happy you know, Father's Day to all Father's of you day. out there. Uh, last year, we did a terrific episode about Father's Day, and it also included our Remnant Stew Father's Day gift guide. So you might want to go back and check out that episode. There are some pretty awesome ones. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Hello, Father is what it was called. Uh, June 19th is also Juneteenth. Mm-hmm. Uh, this commemorates the day. Uh, that the last of the slaves were freed uh, during the United States Civil War as Union troops arrived in Galveston, Texas. The last holdout. Right, right. With, the, with the news that the Civil War was over and all the, uh, all the slaves had been freed. But also, this is a special day uh, meant to slow down from the hectic pace of life that many of us experience these days. That's right. June 19th is also World Sauntering Day. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> that's interesting. I, I get told I do that easy. Uh-huh. <laughs> Before we go into the history of this special day, let's take a look at what sauntering actually means. From the Oxford Dictionary, to saunter is to walk at a slow and relaxed pace, as if one has all the time in the world. Well, we do. You know, that's true. <laughs> World Sauntering Day became a holiday in the 1970s. The occasion was the brainchild of a publicist called W.T. Rabe, R-A-B-E, who came up with the idea while he was working at the Grand Hotel on Mackinac Island up in Michigan. Uh, Now, why did he come up with this idea? Well, it was to counter the jogging fad that had taken over the U.S. by storm (laughs) during during those days. So he said, no, no, we want to do sauntering, not jogging. I have the hardest time walking slow. When I walk, I'm like, just, yeah, my husband doesn't like to walk with me because I walk way too fast. (laughs) You have trouble sauntering, shifting it into sauntering. I do. (laughs) Yeah, any time I have to walk with with Becky, it's, it's... Relax. We'll get there. It'll be okay. (laughs) Right. Well, now on to our story. You know, kidnapping is a serious offense. Uh, In my time as an educator, I've experienced the phenomenon of a child being kidnapped. Mm. Uh, In this particular case, it was by a non-custodial parent. Mm. It's a terrifying and uh, heinous crime. In our episode today, we are by no means attempting to gloss over or make light of the evil of the crime of kidnapping. However, in 1978, there was a pair of kidnappings that were so bizarre that it begs our attention. And this is indeed the strangest kidnapping case that you've never heard of. And in order to set the stage for this particular event, we need to travel to Korea. You're probably somewhat familiar with this beautiful yet troubled peninsula. Uh, so let's have a brief history lesson. I'm a history teacher. Anyway, that's, that's what I have to do, right? <laughs> Back in uh, 1894, Japan attacked and defeated China in a brief war. I think we mentioned that on one of our previous episodes. Uh, also in uh, 1905, Japan also defeated Russia in a different war. Now, Korea, kind of the smallest kid on the East Asia bloc, kind of had a hint was what, of what was going to be coming their way next. The king of Korea had asked for help from the United States and other countries against the increasingly aggressive Japanese, but that help never arrived. In 1910, 
Japan colonized Korea without a fight. The Koreans knew that they couldn't win, and so they didn't put up a fight. Goodness. They built their administrative complex, uh, the Japanese built their administrative complex right in the middle of the royal palace grounds in Seoul, demonstrating that they were now in charge. For the next 45 years, uh, I'm sorry, 35 years. 35 years. Yeah, for the next 35 years, Japan brutally subjugated the Korean people into what became a Japanese colony. Many Koreans were arrested and executed by the occupying Japanese forces. When World War II broke out, the Japanese forced Korean men into the uh, military to fight and die as Japanese soldiers. Korean women were forced into labor for the Japanese, including being essentially sexual slaves for the Japanese military. Mm. There's not much love lost between the Koreans and the Japanese today. Right. Well, with the surrender of Japan in 1945, Koreans were overjoyed, and they believed that they were going to get their country back. But this didn't happen. Instead, the USSR and the United States split the peninsula into two halves, with the 38th parallel of latitude being the demarcation line, and thus Korea became a country truly divided, divided in many ways, geographically, economically, culturally, and very much so politically. The U.S. set up a democratic elect uh, democratically elected government in South Korea, and the Russians installed a communist government in North Korea. To head the communist government, the Russians installed a Korean resistance leader named Kim Il-sung, who had allied himself with communist ideology groups during the Japanese occupation. Well, on June 25, 1950, with the backing of the Russian military, North Korea launched the surprise attack on South Korea. Kim Il-sung sought to take over South Korea and wanted to make the whole peninsula a communist uh, uh, communist uh, right. zone, right? Right. Um, but that got the United Nations involved. The Americans and other UN forces came to the aid of the South Koreans in what we refer to as the Korean War. Mm -hmm. For three years, the two opposing forces pushed each other back and forth up and down the peninsula in June of 1953, an armistice or ceasefire was finally signed. Now, officially, the two sides are still at war, as no peace treaty has ever been signed. And a two-and-a-half-mile-wide uh, demilitarized zone, which is kind of an odd name because it is very <laughs> militarized, <laughs> That's right. uh, cuts completely across the peninsula, effectively dividing the two countries. So in the 70 years since the armistice was signed, the two countries have become polar opposites. South Korea is a large player on the global market. Its hardworking people have created one of the world's strongest economies. If you have a Samsung or an LG or a Hyundai or a Kia product, well, then you have something that was made in South Korea. North Korea, on the other hand, has languished under the dictator, uh, dictatorial rule of Kim Il-sung, his son Kim Jong-il, and his grandson Kim Jong-un. While the communist government of Eastern Europe uh, and USSR collapsed in 1989, North Korea has maintained strict adherence to communist principles. Today, the average person, the average worker in South Korea earns more than $20,000 per year, while in North Korea it is less than $2,000 per year, wow. more than 10 yeah. times the amount difference. People who have escaped from North Korea talk about massive food shortages, Often grandparents starve to death so that their grandchildren can eat. Interestingly, the, the average North Korean today is about three inches shorter than their South Korean cousins, primarily due to poor nutrition and living conditions. That's crazy. The difference is just 
unbelievable. Right. Wow. Well, I'm kind of sorry for that long setup, but it was important for our bizarre kidnapping stories in order for you to have the full background. It involves a South Korean actress named Choi Yun Hee and her movie director husband, Shin Sang Ok. We'll just refer to them as Choi and Shin, which are their Korean family names. So Choi was a beautiful young Korean woman who aspired to be an actress. In 1948, at the age of 21, she was selected to star in a film called The Sun of Night. The role of film in the years immediately following World War II and the Japanese occupation was a unifying factor for the Korean people. Often these films depicted heroic resistance fighters who had bravely worked against the occupying Japanese forces. The Son of Night became an overnight sensation in both South and North Korea, and Choi was an instant celebrity. So when the Korean War began in 1950, and I have to tell you that Everything I know about the Korean War, I learned from MASH. MASH, yeah. That's right. <laughs> that's kind of the way <laughs> I was, too. That's a, that's a good learning place. Right. <laughs> so, um, but when, when the war began in 1950, Choi was living and working in Seoul when the North Koreans quickly overtook the city. She was captured by the North Koreans who recognized her as a movie star. Yeah. They insisted that she entertain their troops. Well, she didn't really see any way out, yeah. so she agreed to put on a show for the North Koreans. And after the U.N. forces retook the city, Choi was freed but faced some resistance back at home as certain South Korean officials accused her of providing aid and comfort to the enemy. Right. Put so, a little hot water there for yeah, sure. That's yeah. right. So so between these people, there's a lot of paranoia about yeah. people's loyalties. Exactly. So when the with the armistice signed, she sought to once again work in South Korea's fledgling cinema industry. That's where she met a young and energetic new director, Shin Sang-ok, Shin was seven years younger than Choi and was considerably starstruck by meeting the idol. (laughs) But as the two began working together, they developed a chemistry for more than just making movies. The pair were married in 1954. Together, the two founded Shin Film, for which the next 20 years was South Korea's most successful movie factory. Choi starred in over 100 films. The two were the Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor of South Korea. Oh, yeah. They were glamorous, weren't they? Yeah, for sure. Yes. The glamorous couple were close friends with President Park and his wife. Everyone wanted to be near them. Everyone, including Kim Jong-il, the son of the North Korean dictator. Oh, so that's where it starts to take a turn now. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, there's a great picture of uh, of them with President Park and his wife, and uh, they they look very glamorous, for sure. Well, now, speaking of Kim Jong-il, let's talk about him a little bit. Uh, he was born in Russia, actually, in 1941, though the official North Korean biography states that he was born in 1942 <laughs> in a cabin on Moran Peak, North Korea. North Koreans attribute a spiritual significance to this particular mountain. The Kims expected to be viewed uh, as spiritual beings, and history was often the invented or tweaked uh, was often invented or tweaked to provide a holy and heroic narrative for their leaders. Kim Jong Il was the oldest son of Kim Il Sung and his first wife. When he was only eight years old, his mother died, and his father soon remarried. Kim Jong Il hated his stepmother and the attention that his father doted on his younger half brothers. But one place Kim Jong-il found solace was at the cinema. Throughout his teenage years, he developed a voracious appetite for all things film. With his father now as the, quote, great leader, as North Koreans were encouraged to call Kim Il-sung, 
Uh, Kim Jong-il had access to all the latest films, not only from Korea, but also from China, Russia, and Eastern Europe as well. And still, he wanted more, and so a system was developed through the North Korean embassies in Switzerland and in Sweden to, quote, borrow copies <laughs> of the latest movies from America and from Western Europe. The first, the first copyright infringement. Right. <laughs> They've been doing it ever since, right? The borrowed copies were shipped in diplomatic pouches back to North Korea, where they were translated and given subtitles. So he was the real Napster. Right, yeah. <laughs> Um, now, Kim's, uh, Kim Jong-il's father, Kim Il-sung, he didn't really share his, fa- his son's fondness for all things cinema. Rather, Kim Il-sung viewed the medium as a means to instill the North Korean Communist Party doctrine into the populace. Keep in mind that during the 1950s and 60s, North Korea was still primarily a very rural country. Electricity and plumbing were virtually unheard of. So when a government truck pulls into a village... And set up a viewing tent with a large screen and a projector powered by a generator. It was an amazing event for the local farmers and villages. These early North Korean films promoted the value of hard work, self-sacrifice, and patriotism toward the great leader. And the local people ate them up. So he was really using these films as propaganda. Exactly. As very right. much propaganda. Right. However, in 1968, Kim Il-sung became dissatisfied with the quality of movies that the cinema board was producing the Cinema Board of North Korea. At one particular meeting, he was angrily berating the studio heads, and he shouted, quote, Is there anyone in this room who's capable of taking control of this operation? From the back of the room, his son meekly spoke up and said, I will do it, Father. And at that point, Kim Jong-il, and I think at this point he was only about 26 years old, he took control of North Korea's film production. Ah. A lot of people don't know that. With his knowledge of American and European films, Kim Jong-il brought a vibrant new dimension to North Korean filmmaking. First of all, technical quality increased dramatically. North Korean filmmakers knew nothing of the state of cinema outside of their borders. But Kim Jong-il had seen every new release in the last decade. In fact, this particular year, 1968, when he took over, think about some of the movies that were around then, uh, the Space Odyssey, 2001. Yeah, yeah, that was the year of that. Uh, so the dear leader, as the Korean Communist Party had started encouraging people to call the premier's son, spared no expense in bringing his industry up to speed. He brought in expensive new equipment and taught the crews about modern filmmaking styles. The first movie that he created was called Sea of Blood. This film was nothing short of, the, of gratuitous glory-making uh, glory of his father's supposed exploits during the Japanese occupation. This was only to be topped by The Flower Girl in 1972. The Flower Girl tells the story of a girl from a rural village during the Japanese occupation who sells flowers to help support her family. Her father is dead, her mother is ill, and toiling day and night in the employ of a tyrannical landlord, her brother in a Japanese jail, her sister blind after having boiling water thrilled at her face by the landlord's wife. The plot is a succession of cruel turns of fate dealt to the girl and her family until, just as she is finally about to give up, she is rescued by her liberated brother and Kim Il-sung's Korean Liberation Army. The Koreans (laughs) are all exemplary. The Japanese and their collaborators are sneering and sadistic. The importance of the flower girl to North Korean culture Uh, Cultural history is almost impossible to exaggerate. 
The film was a gigantic popular success in North Korea and in China. It even won a special prize at a film festival in Prague in Czechoslovakia, the first and only international prize for a North Korean film up until the 1980s. For Kim Jong-il, the movie's success not only solidified his place of importance in North Korean culture, but it also certified his future as his father's successor. Because even he was the firstborn, but right. just because he was the firstborn, there was still... It still wasn't necessarily him that was going to be the successor, right? Right. He he wasn't really. He was only five foot three. He didn't really have a military bearing. Um, The Kim Il Sung had a younger brother who also was in the resistance with him, and a lot of people thought he should be the one that be the successor. Right. Right. And he also had sons from his second wife too. But um, uh, the success of the Flower Girl convinced Kim uh, Il Sung that uh, Kim Jong Il was the one to success him. Um, the overwhelming success of The Flower Girl became a bit of a problem for Kim Jong-il because it was such a hard act to follow. There were other successful movies produced throughout the 70s, but none came close to the popularity and cultural importance of The Flower Girl. Kim Jong-il was desperate. He needed something fresh, something to breathe new life into North Korea's movies and to continue his cinematic propaganda campaign. And he had an idea of exactly what was needed. And he began to hatch a plan to make it happen. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) And now for something completely off topic and off kilter. Brace yourself for the oddity du jour. Okay, so taking a break from all the intrigue and chaos that is Korean politics, let's talk about something light. Do you know the name of that quirky kind of swirly symbol that means and? Uh, Only because I've watched it on... Wheel of Fortune. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> oh, really? Okay, so it's, Am- it's called what? Ampersand or something? Am- ampersand. Yeah. That's right. It's called Ampersand, and it has a curious history. All right. Depending on the font that it's typed in, you may be able to see that the symbol is a combination of two letters, the E and T. Oh, E-T. Okay, so okay. In, in French, A, spelled E-T, literally means and. So putting the two letters together to form one letter or one figure is called a ligature which is Uh popular in Latin. Um, It's unclear just when the origin of the ampersand was, but we do know that the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in 79 AD preserved more than just the city of Pompeii. Uh It also showed the appearance of the ampersand in some preserved graffiti in the ruins. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So we think think of graffiti as like a a, Uh, a modern modern invention. No, it was there too. (laughs) So it's curious to note too that Children of the 1800s learning the English alphabet had an extra letter to learn. The alphabet didn't end with Z. It ended with ampersand as the 27th oh, I letter. Did, I didn't know that. Yeah, it, that's right. And it got dropped over time. And it's interesting to me that we still use it. It's still oh, yeah. there. Yeah. Even though we dropped it from our alphabet, it's the one ligature that we still use. Oh, interesting. So to quote Merriam-Webster.com, where I got all of this information, uh-huh. the first known example of the word ampersand in English is from the late 18th century, but the word's origin lies in a linguistic tradition that dates to several centuries earlier. Okay. Starting in the late Middle Ages, single letters that also functioned as words, think like I and A, uh-huh. okay, were referred to as letters with the aid of the phrase per se. Okay, per so, se. Oh, I so when you, you were saying like the word I, but instead of using the pronoun, you're saying you want it like we would say the letter I, uh-huh. but they would say I per, per se, se I. Okay. And so uh, when the 27th quasi letter was referred to, it was called <laughs> and per se and. Oh, okay. 
meaning and by itself is the word and. And that read as and per se and, which eventually evolved into ampersand. I was wondering what that meant. (laughs) That's right. And so that's what we have today. And I love it. It's used so many times in logos and logo design. And, And so it's a really beloved symbol. Nice. That was a good oddity. Thank you, Leah. That's cool. Well, back in South Korea, Choi Eun-hee and her husband Shin Sang-ok continued making movies throughout the 1960s and into the 70s. Though the couple wanted children, Choi was unable to bear, so they adopted two children and were very successful and happy. Choi opened up an acting school for aspiring drama students on the back lot of their Seoul studio. She began acting less in order to spend more time with her adopted children. But then, just like in yeah. Hollywood, yeah. <laughs> in 1975, Choi's world was rocked when she learned that Shin had been having an affair with a young actress and had also fathered a child by her. Uh-oh. Outraged yeah. and ashamed, Choi filed for divorce from Shin. The very public and messy divorce was front-page yeah. news in South Korea. Their joint film studio was nearly bankrupt. Oh, yeah, that was a bad time. So a couple years later, after the divorce, Choi was struggling financially. She was still trying to keep her acting school going. One day in January 1978, she received a call from a businessman in Hong Kong. He said that he ran a film studio and also had an acting school in that city. He wanted to visit with her about the possibility of her running both schools. He also sent her a film script and asked if she would be interested in directing the movie. Choi agreed to fly to Hong Kong to discuss the project. But before she left, she called Shin. Even though she was angry with him, she trusted his professional judgment. He sounded skeptical. Isn't it weird, he said, from someone from from Hong Kong to come and ask you to be a director when they have so many directors and staff at their disposal. Though Choi had also also had reservations about the idea, she wanted to prove to Shin that she could do fine without him. Yeah. So on January 11th, <laughs> that's right, January 11th, 1978, she packed her bags and boarded a two-hour flight to Hong Kong. For the next two days, the businessman showed Choi around the city, wanting and dining her at the best restaurants. Yet Choi was frustrated by the lack of business talk. The third day, Choi was met in her hotel lobby by a middle-aged woman and a young girl about 12 years of age. The woman explained that the businessman was unable to meet with her that morning and that he had asked her to accompany Choi to a meeting place later in the day. Okay? So after driving around the city for much of the morning, the woman said, let's drive out to Repulse Bay. It's red a, flag. It's lovely out there. <laughs> it's a red yeah. flag. I, so, I think the twelve-year-old daughter would maybe uh, with her would have kind of alleviated. Okay, it should be safe. She's her little that's girl's right. area. And, yeah. and I think maybe that's why the little girl was there so because too, yeah. listen. So Repulse Bay is about a forty-minute drive from the middle of the city. Despite its repulsive name, <laughs> Repulse Bay is an ex- exclusive area with beautiful beaches. Even to this day, it's a very expensive place in the city. Right. Um, upon arriving at the bay, they got out of the car and began walking along the beach. As it was winter, the beach was nearly empty. Suddenly, a group of long-haired men pulled up in a motor skiff. The men sprung out of the boat, grabbed Choi. She tried to fight, but they were too strong for her. The boat turned and headed away from the bay toward the open sea. One of the long-haired men called Choi's name. She turned to him. He was middle-aged, probably the oldest of the group. How do you know my name, she asked. I'm Korean, he said, using the North Korean term Chosan. Chosan, yeah. Rather than the South Korean term Hengak. Right. Choi's heart sunk into her stomach. Where is this boat going, she asked. Madame Choi, he said solemnly, we are now going to the bosom of the great leader, Comrade General Kim Il-sung. 
After being transferred onto a freighter, Choi attempted to jump overboard, but was caught from behind by a pair of the same men who had abducted her from the beach. For the next three days, she sat in a cabin and sobbed. Food was brought to her, but she only took some soup. Finally, the boat docked. Looking in t- onto the pier, Choi spotted Looking onto the pier, Choi spotted a small man standing in front of a large Mercedes sedan. He walked down the pier and greeted her. Madame Choi, I am Kim Jong-il. We are grateful to have you as our guest. Oh, oh not nice. Oh. <laughs> she was driven to Pongyang, the North Korean capital, and soon the Mercedes pulled past two armed gates and came to a stop in front of a large mansion. Kim Jong-il gave Choi a tour around the house. They circled back to the front of the house where a middle-aged woman in plain clothing was waiting. She will take care of everything you need, he said. At this point, she, he left. She had been imprisoned in a luxury villa called Building Number 1, but prisoned, imprisoned nonetheless. That night and for many nights to come, she called out the names of her children and cried herself to sleep. A few nights later, she was informed that she was to be the dinner guest of Kim Jong-il. At at his dinner parties, Kim Jong-il was always the genial host. It became a routine every Wednesday and Friday night that Choi would be invited to attend, an invitation that she certainly could not refuse. On occasion, she was persuaded to sing for the guests. She always picked very sad songs that would actually make her cry. The party guests thought that she was just deeply feeling the messages of the song, and they exploded into a enthusiastic applause. One evening, Kim Jong-il telephoned her and told her that it was his birthday. Would she please come to his home? As he was showing her through the mansion, she felt emboldened to take a step. Oh, dear leader, she said, I am indebted to you for your concern about me. I am sorry to ask you this, but would you please send me home to South Korea? I have work to do there. I have family, teachers, hundreds of students to take care of. I can't sleep because I'm always thinking of them. Please. Kim Jong-il made a show of thinking for a short while. I understand your dilemma, he said finally, but please bear with me. I have some plans for us. The problem will soon be resolved. And that was that. I I can just see him like putting his... His hand on his chin. Hmm. I'll think think about that for a second. Oh, Oh, no, but I think I've got a better plan. Oh, I really don't like this guy. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't like him before this, but. Right. Well, now, back in South Korea, Shin began to be concerned about Choi. He hadn't heard from her in more than two, two weeks. He called some associates in Hong Kong. However, no one knew anything other than that she had not been seen since January 14th. Shin had a scheduled trip to Los Angeles to explore the possibility of making movies in the United States. While in Los Angeles, the story of Choi's disappearance hit the Seoul newspapers. A Los Angeles-based reporter for one of the Seoul papers caught up with Shin and told him that many people back in South Korea suspect that Shin might be involved in her disappearance. Quote, that's nonsense, he replied. It almost made him laugh. Then he decided that maybe he better go to Hong Kong himself and see what more he could find out. So when he landed in Hong Kong on February 28th, a dozen reporters were waiting for him at the arrival gate. With them were police detectives of the Criminal Investigation Unit of the Hong Kong Police Force. Now remember, at this time, Hong Kong still was part of the United Kingdom. They were still uh, belonged to uh, England. Uh, Shin speculated to the police that North Korea might somehow be involved. He remembered back in 1972 that a North Korean official had visited Seoul for rare talks 
and had requested copies of Choi's movie to take home with him. Shin was taken to his hotel and told to wait there. The next day, a British detective knocked on his door. Upon the course of the investigation, it was learned that a worker in Shin Film's Hong Kong office had been paid by North Koreans to entice Madame Choi to that city with the intention of kidnapping her. See, uh, oh. that's one of those things. Like, you don't yeah. know who where, right. where people's yeah. loyalties lie, and it could just be anybody. Right. Somebody that was working for them. That's right. The worker was expelled back to Seoul, where he was given 15 years in prison for cooperating with North Koreans. Shen was uh, off the hook for the investigation of Choi's disappearance, but he had another problem. His passport was about to expire. And the nature of South Korean passports at the time were very time and purpose specific. Uh, Shen had kind of fallen out of favor with government authorities, and he felt that he wouldn't be given another passport. This would prevent him from returning to the United States to seek work in Hollywood. While still in Hong Kong, he was discussing this with a former employee, a man named Lee, who suggested an odd solution. Quote, for $10,000, I know someone who can secure a genuine American passport, he told Shen, who then in turn told the man to make the arrangements. So the next day, Shin and Lee were riding in the back of a white Mercedes and started heading for, you guessed it, the aptly named Repulse Bay. Dun, dun, dun. Because <laughs> Lee wasn't the only backstabbing employee they had. You see, Lee was, he was a traitor. Suddenly, the car screeched to a halt. Four long-haired men were blocking the road. What is it about the long-haired men? They were wearing <laughs> wigs. I think they were wearing wigs somewhere else I read. Yeah. Um, they pulled Shin out of the car. One of them slipped a nylon bag over his head and unfurled it all the way down to his feet, covering his whole body. A rope was tied around his ankle. A knife ripped through the fabric just in front of his face, and fresh air poured in, but then a bottle was pressed up to the opening, and a liquid was sprayed in Shin's face, and he soon blacked out. When he came to, he found himself on a boat surrounded by men with North Korean accents. Mm. After three days on the same freighter that had carried Choi, Shin was escorted off the boat to a dock. At the end of the dock stood a large Mercedes sedan. <laughs> there was no personal greeting this time from Kim Jong-il. But yeah, instead, he's not cute. I guess. <laughs> but instead, two men greeted him saying, welcome to the socialist fatherland. Uh, yeah. So he was kidnapped too. Shin had actually been born in North Korea, but had never returned since the 1945 division. He thought Pyongyang looked like a fake city. There were no street signs, no signs on official buildings, no shops, no restaurants, no billboards, no cafes, no bars, no street vendors. Kim Il-sung's face was everywhere, from statues to posters to the giant propaganda placards on rooftops. No one was out in the streets. The city was as silent as a grave. He was driven to a villa about an hour outside of Pyongyang in an area called the Chestnut Valley. Everything in the villa had been prepared specifically for him. Yeah. There were suits in the closet exactly his size, and all of the self-grooming items he used at home were stocked on the shelves in the bathroom. That's kind of creepy. That's creepy, yeah, that's that's creepy that somebody well, you know, watched him close enough, yeah. and even his favorite dish was served to him. For the next several months, Shen lived inside that house. He never met or spoke to Kim Jong-il, but he was told that everything is being done on special instructions from the dear leader. A man called Comrade Deputy D Director came every day to look after his re-education, big finger quotes there, <laughs> acquainting him with Kim Il-sung's glorious life and career and occasionally taking him on sightseeing trips, including to theater performances. When Shin asked about Choi, 
His handler flew into a rage and scolded him. Mm. On September 9th, North Korea's Independence Day, Shin was given by his handler a large pin with Kim Il-sung's picture on it. He was shown how to pin it on with great respect. He was then driven to a large gymnasium where they took their reserved seats in the VIP section. Yeah. 20,000 screaming people packed the rows of seats all around him. Shin could see Kim Il-sung at the front. He looked fatter than his official <laughs> portraits. <laughs> I, I think they, they kind of doctored this yeah, a little bit. A large tumor even swelled on the back of his neck. <laughs> After a while, Kim Il-sung stood at the main platform and gave a ceremonial speech, which was interrupted by rapturous applause after every few sentences. Across from him, students held up colored placards to create a mosaic of the North American er, North American. <laughs> the North that would really Korean. be something. Yeah. yeah, that would be something. Whoops. The North Korean flag. <laughs> then, with the greatest of ease, they formed Kim Il-sung's face among floating clouds. Shin oh, had never no. <laughs> before seen such a large, well-coordinated crowd, nor had he ever felt so completely alone. Wow. Yeah. Imagine that, seeing all that, you know, pandemonium around you, enthusiasm for this false regime, you know. Yes. And, wow. Back at Chestnut Valley, each day for Shen became the same. His handler would come by and attempt to indoctrinate him into uh, North Korean ideology. Then he was shown two or three movies which had been chosen by Kim Jong-il. It slowly began to dawn on him that he had been brought to North Korea to create movies for the regime. This was something that he, had de he was definitely not willing to do. Right. One night he hatched a plan to escape. Right. He had observed a chauffeur-driven car parked every night outside the house where he was kept. The driver would leave the key in the ignition and go into the kitchen where he would play cards and drink with the staff. I, I think at the time, uh, hardly anybody in North Korea knew how to drive a car. So, you know, why, why bother with the key? You know, yeah. <laughs> Just leave it there. <laughs> they don't, apparently, the kids weren't very uh, in, ad adventurous. No, not, not really. Taking no. the car for a ride. No. On December 29th, Shin slipped out of his room and passed the attendants who were, as usual, drinking and playing cards. He creeped into the car, which was parked, heading downhill. He let off the brake and slipped the car out of gear. Slowly and silently, the car rolled down the hill. Once he had rolled far enough, he flicked on the engine and hit the gas. If I ever make another movie, he thought, this experience will come in handy. <laughs> right? <laughs> the great escape. And he floored it toward the Chinese border. Dun-dun-da-da. Though he had a map, he didn't know that nearly one out of every three people in North Korea were informers. He also didn't know that it was extremely rare for cars to be traveling in the countryside at night. After driving for a couple of hours, he came upon some train tracks. He ditched the car and hopped in an open freight car of, of a slow-moving train that was headed north. Soon the train pulled into a station. Three railroad workers came right to the car where he was hiding and pulled him out. He, oh, had, been, wow. he had been caught less than 10 miles from the Chinese border. Oh, that close. Wow. After his interrogation, this is so sad, Shin was taken to one of North Korea's infamous prisons. Oh. Evidently, Kim Jong-il could not believe that Shin would try to leave the country after he had been, tr had been treated so well. <laughs> yes. It had been decided, it was then decided that Shin would endure a hard time for his attempted escape. He was made to charge, er, he was made to change into prison garb cotton, second-hand and unwashed from the previous person, and taken to a small, damp, filthy cell that it would be his new home. He had to crawl into it through a flap on his hands and knees. Prisoners were not allowed to communicate with each other. Along with his fellow inmates, Shin was instructed to sit in his cell in a cross-legged position, head down, 
and not move again. This prison became his home for the next four years. I think oh they stayed goodness. in that position for most of the day, too. Yeah, mm. yeah just, just like that. Eventually, Shin felt that he no longer wanted to live, so he decided to go on a hunger strike. After a couple of weeks of not eating, his body grew weak. Suddenly, the prison guards entered his cell and brought him to a nearby hospital where he was given IV fluids and nutrition. He overheard the staff say that it was imperative that Shin survive, which is, that's odd. Yeah, right. After a couple days of recovery, a guard came into his room to inform him that he was to be the guest of honor at a banquet thrown by the dear leader, <laughs> Kim Jong-il. Shin knew. No, not this again. <laughs> he, well, Shin could scarcely believe this. Well, he had never yeah. met him, actually, yeah, right. not exactly. face to face. He's like, wait, I was already the guest. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then I'm prison. Yeah. Here we go again. Yeah. But Shin could hardly believe this. So, but within a week, he was discharged from the prison, given new clothes, and ushered in a special car to a mansion in Pyongyang. He walked into a large room of well-dressed people and immediately recognized Kim Jong-il coming toward him to shake his hand. Mr. Shin, please forgive the dramatics. I'm sorry to have caused you so much suffering. Before Shin could answer, Kim Jong-il went on. No one ever laid a hand on Madame Choi. I send her back to you exactly as she was. At that point, at the opposite end of the room, a door opened and Choi entered, accompanied by a military guard. Wow. Shin and Choi looked at each other in shock. Choi barely recognized Shin as he had lost so much weight due to his years in prison and his hunger strike. Kim Jong-il reveled in his role as matchmaker, bringing the two back together again. The party, with eating, drinking, singing, and dancing, went on until 3 a.m. Then Kim sent Choi and Shin back to his, the, the first villa where Choi had initially been taken for what Kim called their honeymoon. Oh, oh man. So Something the, else. So the great one married them again. Yeah, yes. married them again. Brought them back together. Yes. Interesting. The dear one. Yeah, the after dear one. after <laughs> he separated them. Well, yeah. I guess he well, didn't. He never but, kidnapped the second one in there. Yeah, you know, yeah. kidnapped them both, right. Well, when they arrived in the bedroom that had been prepared for them, they embraced each other tightly. Concerned that the room was bugged, they went into the bathroom and turned the water on for noise. Then they whispered bits of their stories to each other, and they agreed that they would work together to help each other survive and ultimately escape. If that meant making movies for the dear leader, so be it. So on October the 19th, 1983, Shin and Choi were summoned to a meeting with Kim Jong-il. Choi had recently purchased a small cassette rec uh, recorder, and she had it hidden in her bag. The couple intended to use this occasion to ask Kim why they had been brought to North Korea. In the event that they were able to escape, they wanted evidence that they hadn't defected. A lot of people oh, suspected right. that they had been defected, you know. Uh, Kim Jong-il readily admitted that he wanted to bring Shin to direct North Korean films. Madam Choi had been brought first to use as a lure. The couple, using their acting skills, laughed and joked along with Kim about the misfortunes of the past five years. Ha 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 ha. All that time <laughs> yeah, in prison. That prison was such uh -huh. a funny oh, thing. It was, it was hilarious. Kim agreed that the couple would reestablish Shin Film as a North Korean entity. Kim Jong-il promised them funding of $2 million a year to be used however they needed it. Furthermore, and most importantly, Kim agreed to allow the couple to shoot on foreign locations. Ah. Their passports were reissued to them. They knew that they would have to please the Kims in order to gain their confidence and loosen their restrictions. 
Within a month, they were on a plane flying to Eastern Europe to scope out filming locations. They were closely accompanied by several North Korean handlers who held on to their passports. While in East Berlin, they saw the American flag flying just to the other side of a set of barriers. Choi looked at Shin, wondering if this was their opportunity to make a break for it, but Shin waved her off. He wasn't going to risk it unless there was a 100% chance of success. He had already once paid the price of a failed escape attempt. That's right, and if they got caught again, she would also go to prison. Right. A few months ago, we asked you to go to our website, click on a link, and show us some love by writing notes about how much you like listening to Remnants Do. It was all for a contest uh, to win sponsorship money. We asked for the love, and we got it. Yes. <laughs> Thanks to you and the notes that all of you wrote. Unfortunately, we didn't get to see them. Remnant <laughs> Stew was a winner. We won $250, and we wanted to thank you so much and let you know that we decided beforehand that if we won money, the very first thing we would do with it is to give back. So we gave $25 to our local food bank, right. and we are committed to giving 10% off the top of any money that we make in the future to a charitable cause. That's right. And the second thing we wanted to do was show some gratitude. Now, we've been very blessed here at Remnant Stew to be allowed to record our podcast here in the greater cut-and-shoot area uh, at a studio free of charge uh, from a local business. Over the last two years, uh, they, they have... Um, been very generous to us and so we bought some breakfast pastries and surprised the company employees as a thank you it was just a small thing considering but it's made their monday just a little bit brighter and the rest of the money goes toward our operating expenses so thank you again for being the best listeners ever Woo-hoo. we love you thank you very much thank you they began filming their first movie for Kim Jong-il in Prague, Czechoslovakia. Shin found that he was actually enjoying making a movie again, even if it was for Kim Jong-il. Yeah. The movie titled Emissary of No Return was about a Korean diplomat during the Japanese occupation who traveled to The Hague in the Never- Netherlands to plead his country's fate before the world court. Shin had used many innovative techniques and camera angles on the film that North Koreans had never seen before. The movie was said to be released on April 15, 1984, which was Kim Il-sung's birthday. It was an astonishing success, yeah. and it helped Shin and Choi to gain the trust of Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il. While making the movie, Shin and Choi fell in love again. In an environment where separately they had nothing, yeah. each found that the other person became their everything. They depended on each other for their sanity and focus, and they were each other's last remaining link with their former lives. After five years of missing and fearing for each other every single day, and then being thrown together in a situation where they were both bereft of everything else, Shin and Choi's love was rekindled with a new depth, and together they were still obsessed with escaping from captivity and returning home to their family. The only way to do this was to get Kim Jong-il to allow them to to get close to the Iron Curtain. They determined that the best place to do this was in Vienna, Austria. At that time, Austria and Hungary had had an unusual agreement. Even though on opposite sides of the Iron Curtain, travel between the two was allowed. Mm -hmm. Shin and Choi had to convince the dear leader that Vienna offered filming opportunities that no other country could. The paradox confronting the couple was that their only chance of escape lay in convincing Kim Jong-il that they wanted to stay in North Korea. Then and only then would he grant them permission to film in Vienna. And the only way to do that was to continue making hit movies. Yeah, they did, yeah. 
Over the next three years, Shin and Choi produced seven hit movies. The most spe- spectacular was Pulgasari. Yeah, Pulgasari. <laughs> Pulgasari, which was a remake of a Japanese hit, Godzilla. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> North Korean audiences had never before seen such spectacular events on a movie screen. The movie was even received positive reviews internationally, even from countries outside the Eastern Bloc. With each new hit, Kim Jong-il's re- trust in Shin and Choi became more firmly cemented. Yeah. <clears throat> At the end of 1985, now this is seven, seven years, years yeah. from when they were first kidnapped, Shin convinced uh, Kim Jong-il that establishing a Vienna branch of Shin Film would help provide new revenue streams for future movies. Kim Jong-il, it seemed, fully believed that Shin and Choi had been successfully indoctrinated mm-hmm. and agreed to allow them to travel to v- Vienna to explore setting up a branch studio there. Wow. So on January 29th, 1986, Choi and Shin, along with their watchdog handlers, flew from Pyongyang to Budapest. They were careful to pack only what they needed and to give every impression that they would return to the new villa that Kim Jong-il had built for them. In Budapest, they pretended to be going about the business of preparing for a blockbuster new movie about Genghis Khan. There, they met with an investor from Vienna who invited them to come out, come check out the locations in the city. And that was the invitation yeah. they needed. That was a key moment right there. A connection in Vienna. Yeah. On March 12th, they were driven by their minders to Vienna. It had been decided that most of their watchers would stay behind in Budapest. Only three would accompany, accompany them to Vienna. That afternoon, Shin, Choi, and three North Korean bodyguards walked into the Intercontinental Hotel's grand lobby. At the desk, they learned that the North Koreans had failed to book a suite or adjoining rooms in advance, thank goodness, and that there was no connecting rooms available. For the first time, they would not be sharing suites with their guards. I think normally, any time they were on location, there was always a suite, and their guards were in one room. They were right in the next Mm -hmm. or adjoining room, so they would be right there, sometimes in the same room. That night, Shin phoned an old friend, a Japanese journalist named Inoki-san, who was Mm -hmm. living in Vienna, and set up a lunch meeting for the next day. The lunch Shin and Choi had boasted to their bodyguards would be another PR coup for Kim Jong-il, an interview that would convince the capitalist world that they were living and working for Kim of their own free will. But the Japanese press was harder to convince, they said, and arriving with three North Korean guards might reinforce the theory that they had been kidnapped and were constantly surveilled, which is kind of yeah, true. true. Yeah. <laughs> with this explanation, Shin and Choi convinced their three minders for the first time not to ride in the same car with them or yeah. to sit in the same room when they were being interviewed. The North Koreans agreed to follow in a separate car and wait for them outside the restaurant, watching every exit and to follow them back to the hotel. So, the next morning, March 13th, 1986, Shin invites their bodyguards over to their room for a friendly breakfast. Then around 12.30, Shin and Choi, their minders at a respectable distance, stepped outside of the Intercontinental Hotel, and they found Shin's Japanese friend standing by a waiting taxi. The three of them jumped into the taxi and told the driver to drive around the city center for a while. The North Korean minders suddenly realized what was happening and dashed to the sidewalk and tried to wave down a taxi. Shin explained to Inoki-san that they were desperately trying to get out of North Korea and that the lunch date was a cover. They wanted to get to the American embassy. Choi, sitting in the front seat with the driver, noticed a white taxi following them with three Asian faces sitting inside along with the Austrian driver. They informed the driver to speed up. They were able to pass a couple of other cars, creating a buffer between them and the white taxi. 
By pure luck, they were the last car to pass through the next intersection before the light turned red, leaving the white taxi Mm. behind. Then the taxi's radio crackled and the dispatcher's voice asked the driver which way they were headed so that he could tell the other taxi and their, quote, convoy uh, where they were headed. Then Inoki-san pulled a fistful of money out of his pocket and leaned over to the front uh, the front seat to shove it in the driver's hand. Quote, tell him we went the opposite direction, he told the Austrian. The driver took the money and did just that. Wow. Shin and Joy, tingling with anticipation, excitedly shouted out, U.S. Embassy. The driver made a sharp turn. Choi's face was white as a sheet. My heart was racing like a motor, fearing that we might run into the white taxi on our way to the embassy, Shin later wrote. The U.S. Embassy was five minutes away. It felt like five hours. I bet. The U.S. Embassy in Vienna is located on a narrow street. Traffic is often congested in the area. Shin and Choi's taxi found itself stuck at the bottom of the hill, unable to get any further, about 50 yards from the American Embassy. Breathlessly, Shin asked Inoki-san to stay and uh, watch them until they were safe. Without saying goodbye, he pushed his door open and Choi did the same from the front seat. They ran as fast as they could, reached the embassy door at the very same time. They both grabbed the handles and with a quick pull, the double doors opened and they spread it inside. Oh my goodness. They rushed to the receptionist and in broken English told him their name. Shin handed him a Shin film card with a Pyongyang address and tried to explain their situation. The receptionist took them to an embassy worker who walked them through a metal detector and had guards pat them down. Then they were placed in a small room, given a cup of tea, and told to wait. Shin still expected to see the North Koreans come blazing into the embassy to take them back to North Korea and place them in prison. It was now 1.15. Only 45 minutes had passed since they first got in the taxi. Oh, my goodness. Within a few minutes, an embassy official came to escort them out a secluded side entrance into an unmarked sedan. They were driven to a house on a quiet residential street. They rushed inside. The American in charge of the case left the room for a minute and returned with a pink rose. With a big smile, he handed it to Choi. Welcome to the West. Choi took the rose and burst into tears. Oh, my goodness. For the next two years, Shen and Choi lived covertly in Reston, Virginia, under American protection. Authorities debriefed the couple about Kim Jong-il and their experience at the, in North Korea. Later, the couple moved to Los Angeles, where Shin found work as, a, work as a technical director in Hollywood. They finally returned to their homeland of South Korea in 1999. Shin died in 2004 and Choi in 2018. Kim Jong-il took over the leadership of North Korea in 1994 when his father Kim Il-sung died. He ruled the country for 17 years until his death in 2011. For the rest of his life, he believed that Shin and Choi had been kidnapped by Americans in Vienna. He was still convinced of their loyalty to him. (laughs) The majority of this information was paraphrased from an excellent book called A Kim Jong-il Production by Paul Fisher, published by Flatiron Books in... 2015. Did yeah. I say that with a Texas accent? <laughs> flat iron. Flat it's iron flat iron. iron really books. an outstanding book, <laughs> and uh, so many more details about this story. And highly recommend that you that you uh, read the, the Kim Jong Il production. That is a definitely strange kidnapping. Yes, love story kidnapping, reunited reunited love, and yet still. Weird kidnapping. They did stay together. They stayed married for the rest of their lives, and uh, yeah. you know, they were reunited. Their, their children uh, caught up with them in the United States, and um, mm. so it ended uh, well. But what? Yeah, 
What a what, what a thing. nearly a decade journey of, of yeah. just weird and bad. Yes. Right. <laughs> and now it's time, boys and girls, for the trivia challenge. Well, now um, let's take a look at the trivia challenge. Uh, you know how to play this. Like and follow our Facebook page at Remnant Stew Podcast. Like and share this episode post. Put your answer to the trivia challenge question in the comments of that post. The first person to do all of that will be the winner and will be mentioned in an upcoming episode of Remnant Stew. So what's our question today, Leah? Okay, so what future Apollo 11 astronaut served as a fighter pilot during the Korean War? Oh, interesting. Good one. All right, folks, check out our Facebook and Instagram at Remnant Stew Podcast, or send us an email to say hi or to suggest a topic for future episodes at staycurious at remnantstew.com. Remnant Stew is created by me, Leah Lamp, Dr. Stephen Meeker, and I research, write, and host each episode, along with commentary by our audio producer, Philip Sinkfeld. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod, with voiceover by Morgan Hughes, and special thanks to Judy Meeker and Harbin Gould. Well, now, before you go, please hit the follow button so you won't miss an episode. Head over to Apple Music and leave us a review. Share Remnant Stew with your family, your friends, and the nice folks down at the United States Embassy. (laughs) Until next time, remember to choose to be kind and and always always stay stay curious. curious.